Welcome to our improvisational theater. This is, of course, completely unrehearsed, unwritten, and unintelligible. Nothing is planned. We just ask our audience to call out what you would like us to do. Simply give us a last line, a title, some characters, a theme, a setting, a point of view, a plot, a first line, and some lines in between, and we make up the rest, improvising as we go along. This next minute is completely rehearsed, planned, and calculated. Your reaction to it, however, may be improvised. You are on your own. Welcome to the Shamley Silhouette, yet another analysis of the master of suspense, Alfred Hitchcock. I am your host, Zach Eastman. Um, we are, you know, plugging away as usual. I keep saying that uh, in the recent episodes that I've been recording, but I do mean it. We're keeping going. We're not going to let anything stop us. Not a not a pandemic. Nothing. Nothing is going to stop the Shamley Silhouette from uh, continuing its mission. Um, although I do want to point out... Uh, as the Shamley silhouette draws to a close on the subject of Alfred Hitchcock and transforms itself into its new entity, um, which w that will be announced uh, sometime in September, um, I do want to point out that we um, we in the podcasting world have been seeing what's been going on uh, over the course of the past um, uh, weeks, um, not just in this country, but also just everything that's been going on. And... Uh, one of the things that this show has been able to do is talk about the subject of Golden Age Hollywood um, in an entertaining and hopefully informative manner to the best of the ability that I'm able to. However, I'm also aware that as this show plugs along in different forms and entities, it is going to be up to me um, and whoever else I have on board to try to tackle subjects about the Golden Age of Hollywood that may not be comfortable to those who like to remember it fondly. Um, obviously, we are dealing with a situation where we need to improve as a society beyond the abilities that we thought we had accomplished years ago. And one of the ways that this can be accomplished will be addressing the history of not just uh, our uh, us as people, but also us as uh, entertainers and um, creatives. And there's a lot of history uh, within Hollywood that is not pretty to look at, but it needs to be looked at to talk about the sins as well as the uh, triumphs of this period and to fully understand it in context. So then that way, when we watch films of this era, we are not just blindly watching for entertainment. We are also learning because as silly as it's going to sound out of my mouth, it's intelligent thinking. But Enough of the soapbox. I'm going to step off that one uh, for now and get on another soapbox. Uh, the soapbox of the theater, the stage world. And I speak of a film from 1950 that Alfred Hitchcock directed with some of the most over-the-top and crazy talents you could possibly have in a movie. And also the very theme of theater and extravagant 
acting itself. Uh, I speak, of course, of 1950s stage fright. Now, here to bring uh, this discussion into the limelight, if you will. <laughs> no, don't make that joke, Zach. Um, anyway, I brought on a return guest. Uh, you you listen to his dulcet tones speak intelligently and wisely about Alfred Hitchcock's The Birds not too long ago. And I brought him on here not just because he is an intelligent and analytical fella, um, but the movie has the title has fright in the title. So we've got to talk to one of the co-hosts of Punk Rock Horror Podcast, uh, Matt McCord, a.k.a. The Undead Matt. Hi there. Thank you for the intro. Cody sends his love and is deeply, deeply sorry that he cannot be here. Um, and then wants everyone who is a ghoul gal or paper moon from our show to know that he's very sorry. And anyone else who was looking forward to him coming on too, he's very sorry. But uh, thank you for having me on. And thank you for introing me like that. Um, I'm glad my uh, my analyzing skills are actually more of a testament to my intelligence than it is to me being pit- nitpicky. <laughs> there, are, there are there there are there are days when I'll go back to other episodes of the show mainly just to uh, mainly just to find out all audio quality and what I can do better um, in the in the post room because I'm still learning at this like anybody else is. Um, but the the one episode I'll go back to more often than not other other than uh, the Huntley Haverstock episode is uh, the birds episode because uh, when we get into the middle section when we're talking about the birds attacking and just listening to the diatribes and discussions of not just that movie, but also what would happen if a bird actually flipped Hitchcock off on set. <laughs> Just tickle me to no end. <laughs> I'm glad. Um, and real yeah. quick, I, I know you, with respect to you, I know you did say you wanted to step off your soapbox, but if I could kind of just like prop you up on it one more time, I, I think it's really, really great what you said, um, how you approached everything that's happening in the world right now. You know, as a fellow entertainer, I also struggled with, you know, what what is our, you know, where do we stand with everything? What should we say? Because when people are coming to, you know, our show and, and you know, your show especially, it's to hear about film. It's to learn about the history of it and to have, you know, that type of yeah, very kind of like uh, brain food type of entertaining escape. And that. Uh, Escape usually kind of like stigmatized as like a negative thing with not facing anything. Where we're here to talk about film. Um, obviously, we're gonna have to touch about about some of the ugly parts of history, but we're gonna approach it with an honest light. And if anything, I honestly think that gives you far more credit the fact that you are going to be honest about it when it's when it's appropriate and is needed for it. So I just I, I'm I'm just basically saying that I applaud you for saying that. So uh, so good job, sir. Thank you. Oh. Well, 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 thank you. I I do appreciate I appreciate that sentiment. On my end, I you know it's one thing to say you know something; it's another thing to, um, uh, to uh fully understand what's been going on. And I will point out that like one of the things that we are able to do with the fil- with the respective shows that we have is to talk about uh the different angles of the industry beyond just our love of the story, the actors, the plot the characters, et cetera. There's, there's a history behind a lot of these things um, in various different forms that uh, needs to be addressed. Um, but I will point out for listeners of the, the Shamley Silhouette and also um, anybody who is on the punk rock horror podcast scene, you know, if you, if you're already a listener, you already know this, but episode 115 um, that you guys did uh, a moment of silence was one of the finest podcasts I listened to with this within the month. 
And um, obviously this show will be coming out in July or August. But if you can go back and listen to what Matt and Cody did <clears throat> chatting about uh, the uh, black exploitation and African-American horror films, I think you will you will find that my intro to Matt up front was not unwarranted at all whatsoever. And that goes for Cody as well, because you guys were talking about an angle on uh, cinema that is um, has thankfully gotten a lot more exposure over the years thanks to Get Out. Um, and if you haven't watched the Shutter documentary Horror Noir, which goes into greater detail on it for like two hours, um, so but yeah, th this is a this is a subject that's not going to go away. And if anything, as we get further into different topics, it's going to come up more and it's going to be addressed. And it's not just it's not even going to just be with the issue of racism in the industry. It's also going to be the history of sexism in the industry. And it's also going to be the flat out injustices uh, impended on the uh, uh, on the gay community and the LGBTQ community in general. Well, uh, just to kind of like end on what you're saying, you know, um, it, because I do want to talk about the film, too, and I want to talk about uh, Stage Fright and, and Hitchcock some more. But um, just to in risking a little bit here on the soapboxes, um, you know, when it comes to racism in this country, it's very systemic in how it's been taught to us and how we were educated in schools. And so with you coming on here and not hiding away the obvious racism, sexism, and, and homophobic tendencies, and more so that Hollywood has cleverly hid away, and you bring a light to that, um, at the end of the day, we'll, we'll always make you an ally because we lived in a society for so long that has hid that part of history so well and has kept a veil over it for so long. You know, uh, uh, it's it's knowledge is a very beautiful thing, and I will always encourage everyone to seek it out and seek the right knowledge. And uh, again, sir, in my eyes, you are an ally. So that is just oh. my opinion. So, uh, well, that 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 does my heart good. And um, and if uh, and if anybody uh, wants to, um, you know, tell me that I'm wrong about um, wanting to bring these issues to the forefront, um, I will. Um, I, I mean, I don't know if I'd have an answer to that other than go fuck yourself. I'm Hitchcock, the genius. Now, um, <laughs> now uh, you, you are too, you are too kind, sir. You are far too kind and, and too humble. But let's jump into that. Let's talk about yeah, stage fright. We are we we are coming back to me, me. <laughs> um, now, um, really quick, really quickly before we jump into stage fright. Now, I brought you into this episode initially because I I was being cheeky and going like, well, I'll get the horror guys to talk about a movie with the word fright in the title. But um, but uh, to to be honest, one of the things that we can talk about this film in advance is that it's a bit of a genre mashup not too dissimilar from other Hitchcock films but it's it's very very um in keeping with an inner sanctum mystery of the era like similar to the radio show inner sanctum where it's it, it's it's darker than usual um or at least it feels that way as such now the film gets criticism as being a more light-hearted affair but rewatching it, especially for this series, and uh, as as late as today, you know, there's there's a there's a feeling throughout the film of just like something like terribly dark and macabre overhanging the entire thing in a way like there's very little levity because everybody's kind of placed in a tale of suspense within the larger suspense of the film. Um, now, you talked about in the last time you came on the show. 
about the things that qualify as a horror movie. So I'll ask you in regards to this, um, having watched it, would you consider this, if not at the very least a horror film, then a kind of a horror mashup? Because that's the kind of tone I got out of it. You know, um, the thing about what, what quantifies as horror that I've also should have prefaced the last time is that it has changed dramatically throughout time. So, I mean, today, for example, today is modern age. When we think horror, the first thought is always going to be, you know, I like to use an example of like, you know, like uh, witches falling on broomsticks, spiders, blood guts, somebody killing someone. Now there's mm-hmm. ghosts involved possessing things. Now there's, oh, who, uh, who done it? Now things like mental health are being touched on a little more. And so um, there's all these added layers that are added to modern horror that in some ways not only extends it, but also really does a good job at kind of making you really question what is actually horror. You know, I mean, I could go back and make the case to you that movies like The Black Cauldron are legit, you know, a horror movie, but a horror movie for kids. Um, and, and that's because of a lot of themes and how they incorporate their tale. Now, talking about stage fright, I feel so because I did additional research on this movie because I actually didn't know a lot about it. So I wanted to do more research on it than just watching it. And so uh, reading through it, kind of finding out that at the time that Hitchcock himself um, was kind of, you know, uh, coming away from the failure of, uh, I think it was Under the Red Capricorn. Uh, yeah, Under under Capricorn and Rope, too. So he had a... He had a I had a double hitter of bad luck, Matt. It was it was pretty <laughs> shitty. I, I, you know, I, I, I just don't know what happened. Who didn't want to watch a movie about Jimmy Stewart throwing his beliefs under the bus in the last five minutes? I just, I just don't understand. <laughs> well, so what's interesting about the film, though, is that you can tell he's trying to go and use more of... You know, he's trying to tap more into his theater side of telling stories you know and keep in mind that this was like a co-written adapted screenplay from a novel um with him and his wife you know that i guess plays into it a little bit too but um there's certain scenes that like i don't want to spoil anything as we discuss it but there are certain scenes in this movie that um, you would mostly see in like a psychological horror film. So um, mm-hmm. if it's okay for uh, 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 the scene yeah, I'm yeah, going to talk right about yeah. in, protect, in particular is, is uh, when, when uh, um, oh man, I'm, I'm forgetting his name, but the gentleman who is hiding. Uh, oh, Jonathan Cooper. Yes. We'll, we'll give his name up front. Yes. Yes. Yeah, so he's in a conversation with, uh, and again, I'm bad with names. He's in a conversation conversation with uh, the woman he's working with to kind of get his name cleared. Uh, uh, yes, Eve. Yes, yeah. So as they're having this conversation, you know, a group walks up to them, and um, I'm at this point, I am purposely like admitting names so you can intro it. Um, but a group walks up to them to talk to to Eve, and um, what happens is that he looks at a white dress. And this blotch appears on the white dress for a moment. And, you know, being used to modern cinema, sometimes black and white just goes right over you. Um, but the scene was actually supposed to be a blood stain on the dress. And mm-hmm. he and, he's, and, it, and it happens for a second. And, and, and for how old the film is, it's actually a really impressive, like, effect. I was impressed by it. I thought it was great how they included it. But he just sees the stain appear on this, you know, this woman's white dress. And then it disappears. And you see similar things like that 
in modern psychological horror and paranormal horror for the most part. You see when uh, whether it is somebody who did who was responsible for killing someone. So like, for example, in Hereditary, um, you know, if you haven't seen the film yet, you know, uh, there's there's a part where, uh, you know, the brother loses little sister via head being decapitated. And so there's moments where he still thinks she's in the back seat, but without a head or it's just like turned backwards. And yeah. so, although a much more extreme way to show that, even back then, 1950s, when, you know, but murder was obviously real touching on it in a film had to be done in this very theatrical way because audiences would have found it too shocking. I mean, if you put that scene in hereditary in stage fright and, and you know, <laughs> that, and you know, that person got their head ripped off guaranteed like Alfred Hitchcock, Hitchcock would have given everybody an aneurysm. You know, well, you it, know. You, they would have set the theater on fire. Is what they would have done. They would have like they would have. You know, I I, I always make this joke about film and filmmaking in general. Like, I, I, and I always just point it out, like, because I like making fun of the rubes who do this, which is like, um, like, and this is not something today, but this is something like back in the old days of being like, oh, the camera's gonna steal my soul, like, oh, it's gonna it's gonna appear into my very essence, like th- these kind of rubes would just flip their shit, and unfortunately that kind of mentality would have still prevailed into the as late as the 90s but you're right like they they were required under the production codes uh, which would then eventually become the MPAA um which while I don't like the person who founded the initial forming of the MPAA they did allow much more than you would have been able to get way, get away with in the Shylock office right. and the production code or the Hayes code even so there is a there is a definite uh, subtlety throughout not just uh, Hitchcock's films, but Golden Age Hollywood films in general, where things have to be alluded to and in essence end up being stronger than any violence you can show on screen. Um, I, I mean, the, this is like the, you know, beating a dead horse, but you can go back to Halloween, a film that doesn't have the amount of violence that would be attached to the genre it creates. And, uh, arguably works more in a Hitchcock motif than it does in a slasher motif. Now, when you get to the sequels, obviously it's a completely different story. Um, but so, yeah, you're right that it, it is interesting that this film in particular, and it's actually, it's funny because this film, you know, carries a long line of Hitchcock doing this, but this is kind of like the last stone he has to step on before he gets into his golden period. Um, where he does eventually make a film like Psycho um, and then eventually The Birds, where he's completely opening up the door um, of good taste and just saying, frack it. (laughs) Oh, sorry, sir. I was just going to say, like, so to answer your question, um, I wouldn't wouldn't really – I don't want to say – it's a horror movie by today's standards. What I will say is that it's a pinnacle in horror just as much as uh, Deep Purple is a pinnacle for metal. You know, uh, the, the groundwork... <laughs> that's a, good, well, and, and that's I mean a that great reference. Compliment, though. Well, it's, it's a, it, it is a compliment, though, because like, so, yeah, yeah. Uh, like Deep Purple is, de- is one of the bands that's associated with laying the groundwork of metal until Dio and Sabbath came along and really made it what it is and, you know, made a sound for it, but... You know, if you listen to Deep Purple's music, it's it's very heavy. You know, for back then, it was very heavy. I mean, obviously yeah. today, it's not going to be heavier than, like, anything that Cannibal Corpse has ever put out. 
But no, 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 um, no, no. <laughs> that in mind, if you if you look at stage fright, there's a lot of that similar groundwork. You know, whether it's whether it is the bloodstain scene I just mentioned, or Eve kind of being in the middle of what you know. It, although in the movie seems like a very kind of like heroic thing and it is and it's like very it seems easy for her if we adapted that for now that would be i mean and i guess it has kind of been adapted but point being is that is that even just being pulled between two different forces of i have this secret that can ruin me in my entire life but i <laughs> i want to prove that i i i can do i can be a fantastic fucking actor you know um yeah, is exactly. is such it could be such a draining thing on on a person's mentality i can easily see it being uh you know a psychological horror so uh, i would i i wouldn't so i guess my statement on it is that it's it would be a pinnacle into bringing horror into more film uh a film acceptance and obviously again with like what you said following up uh, with hitchcock bringing up psycho and then the birds kind of cements that even more so and uh, so on and so forth. Sorry, go ahead. I didn't mean to. No, you, no, yo, no, 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 no. That was the absolute correct thing that needed to be said right now. Um, and and when I point out, I should point out when I was mentioning the Inner Sanctum show earlier. And this also extends to things like Suspense and The Whistler. Um, these were radio plays of the era, and Inner Sanctum even had a series of films by Universal where the material always seemed like it's not quite noir. It's trying to tiptoe past noir and into something a lot more um uh obscene um or something a little bit more um uh vile in the case of stage fright i think what it mainly uh does is primarily steep itself in the uh in in the ultimate uh insanity of marlene Dietrich's character um being as selfish and vile as she is but also um into what we'll later find um with the spoiler character um and and basically how we get it within the last five minutes of this movie, it becomes a little bit more of a horror movie than you're uh, than you're expecting. For the majority of it, it plays out as a whodunit. Like, yeah, that's right. I made a fucking mystery movie. Why the fuck not? Um, <laughs> I, I can I can do what Ryan Johnson will do 80 years later. <laughs> like so. And this actually has been compared to an Agatha Christie story to a certain extent as well. So there's, we'll find a lot of uh, interesting things to bring up throughout it. But I will point out, this is a movie of suspense that features, amongst other things, an over an overdramatic villain, which not unlike a Norma Desmond, who would later go on to influence several different over-the-top horror actress performances that are wonderful to watch. Um, but there's also a creepy doll in this movie that does something terrifying, but not what you'd expect. Um, <laughs> and there is technically some um, some gothic imagery by the climax, especially when we're dealing with scenes in the theater. Um, so, but we will go ahead and jump into some production info in this film because this the production info in this film there isn't a lot of like detailed info like you have with a Psycho or a Vertigo, and we've been experiencing this with some of the films. But what there are are a bunch of anecdotes, and we're gonna go through them. But I'll go through the credits right now, directed by me, Mister Who Done It. I can do this. I can do what everybody else does. Uh, produced by that same guy. Um, screenplay by Whitfield Cook. 
um, with a story by Alma Revel based on the film, uh, based on the novel Man Running from 1948 by Selwyn Jepson, which is a great name, by the way, Selwyn Jepson. <laughs> like, so it's, it's, it's very unique. You can definitely pick it out of a crowd. Yeah, it, Matt, if you have another kid, name it Selwyn Jepson. <laughs> I, I will name it only Selwyn Jepson. And, and, and if, it, uh, if that kid decides to get his name changed, I'm disowning him entirely. <laughs> You'd be like, no, 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 you don't get it. Some, some, some jackass in Denver told me to tell you that this is your name. <laughs> it's from a podcast. How could you be so disrespectful? <laughs> What's a podcast, Daddy? Shut up. <laughs> um, but no, um, yes, Alma Revel. Yes, this. So there, there's a reason why Alma Revel is important to bring up here. Because so, for more, um, for a more um, uh, intelligent uh, breakdown of this production story, listen to the Secret History of Hollywood by uh, Adam Roach, who will be our final guest on the show. But when um when you're coming off of the failure of rope and under capricorn and essentially something like transatlantic pictures which is a production company that hitch and uh sydney j bernstein founded failing the um the the impetus it, it is imperative of you to come up with a way to bounce back especially if you're somebody like Halford hitchcock and so he had constructed um um a way to basically like, well, let's make some films that we let's set up some films that we know will be successes. Um, they tap Whitfield cook to do this. Whitfield cook, um, was adapting a play initially based off of some books that he had written. Um, and in the play he had cast Patricia Hitchcock, Hitchcock's daughter, and his talents caught the eye of Hitch and Alba. And, you know, Hitch said, Hey, come on over to our club. And, um, so, they're working on this story based on the man running novel. Alma basically writes the story and the scenes along with Hitch and um, uh, Whitfield cook works primarily on the dialogue along with the additional writing of uh, Ranald McDougal. Um, but so the, the way this film gets made is very strange because if you'll recall in your, in what you read, Matt, you have a failure like under Capricorn. Now Hitchcock had a deal with Warner brothers to distribute the transatlantic pictures productions. Um, not the least of which um, was under Capricorn and rope and Hitchcock's lawyer um, went over the contract for uh, Warner brothers with uh, Hitchcock and assumedly transatlantic pictures. And he called up Hitch one day and said, you're you, you, I've got some good news they made the deal with you, not with transatlantic pictures. And there's still two pictures left on the deal. And so Hitchcock goes, Oh, 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 I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to play a card here, Mr. Lawyer. I'm going to play a card so bold and brash that nobody will ever fucking believe it. If you, not even if you have this amazing podcast that's being done in Britain years later, where they describe it in much greater detail, but I'm going to do it. So, the summary of that story is he goes in to Jack Warner's office and basically bullshits his way into making this movie <laughs> because he knew that he had the right to do it, but he didn't want to throw legalese um, and, uh, in Warner's face. And Warner bought the bait and was just like he, he must have appreciated that approach because he gave him virtually no interference whatsoever on this movie and coming movies to follow. So that's how the film gets ramped up and started. That's insane. That's insane. You can't do that today. You can 
it, it would behoove you more to make the contract argument and use the legalese than to do what Hitchcock, Hitchcock did, which is basically Hitchcock did what Ben Affleck does in that retainer scene in Goodwill Hunting. <laughs> like, that's that's what we've got here. So, nevertheless, they get this film off the ground. Hitchcock basically casts this film to basically be marketable. He needs a hit to justify anything else he wants to do down the line. So he casts, amongst other people, the the cast of this film is is stacked with not only acting legends, but also British character actor legends. So the cast of this film is Jane Wyman, Marlene Dietrich, Michael Wilding, Richard Todd, Alistair Sim, Kay Walsh, Sybil Thorndike, Joyce Grenfell, and Patricia Hitchcock playing uh, the char- a character that you probably don't notice in the film, but it's there. It's Chubby Bannister. That's an unfortunate... I'm sorry, I... It's not, it wasn't to insult my daughter. It's just, that was the name. And we had, I, I'm going to hell, aren't I, Matt? I'm going, I'm going to parent hell. Um, <laughs> uh, I, I think I, I am too. That's, uh, that's definitely a, a name I used to call myself at some point. And, uh, you know what? We're just going to leave it at that. You know, before I did Punk Rock Horror Podcast, my name was Chubby Bannister, and I ran a, a vaudeville tour across the Midwest. <laughs> I had a porn career. It was short-lived. It did oh, not go well. Oh. I, uh, yeah, yeah. You know what? Oh. No one really wanted to hire a guy named Chubby, Chubby for a first name to be one. And then, you know, Bannister. You know, it just wasn't great, you know. So I'm glad it, it, to know it, that. It, 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 it intimated depression and stares. And those are things that people didn't want in their porns at the time. So, you know. Like, um, so, but yeah, this cast is fucking stacked. <coughs> Excuse me. And uh, Jane Wyman's casting in particular, she had just come off of an Oscar uh, for the film uh, Johnny Belinda. Uh, and she she was she was a very well-known actress of the late period. She started off mainly doing comedic roles, but then she got into films like The Yearling and um, and Johnny Belinda that kind of elevated her to a different plane. Um, Jane Wyman was also married at one point to um a certain act, a certain actor who did movies with monkeys before he would go on to lead the country from 1980 to 1988. And I speak of course of, uh, Ronald, uh, Na- Ray- Mary, where's the rest of me? Uh, I'm sorry, Ronald, uh, Ronald, where's the rest of me, Reagan? Um, so she was married to Reagan and they were getting a divorce at the time that she got a call to make this movie. So Hitchcock called her up and basically said, Hey, you want to come make a movie out in Britain? She goes, yeah, I'm, I'm divorcing Reagan. I'll do anything to get out of the country right now. Yeah. Anything. Yeah. And he's anything. like, why, 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 why doesn't he want, why doesn't he want me, Jane? Is it just cause I'm divorcing you? Why, why was he one? I, you know, I fuck it. He's a communist. They're all communists. It doesn't fucking matter anymore. Um. Uh, without backtracking like too hard. Can I also say yeah. that it's like one thing that I also found really interesting is that, um, you know, Hitchcock kind of was really big for just, like, having his, like, go-to group of people that he, you know, put in all his films. And yeah. th- this one was definitely, like, weird based on how it was received via that because there are some film critics who film critics who really believe that the film isn't as great as it ever was because just some of the characters do not uh, mix well because they've never really... 
interacted too much, you know, in the same room together. Whereas, yeah. you know, it, it's some like like you in, in particular, uh, Zach, like applaud it for that because then it's forcing you know these actors to really you know work outside of a actual comfort zone. Yeah. Well, and also keep in mind if we think about horror films today, or even let's go back twenty years ago to the nineties, where you had a cat. You, sometimes if it was made by a studio, you'd stack a cast with people who were hot on the scene and they clearly don't mesh well with each other. Now, sometimes you get a good result out of it. Like I argue the faculty, in addition to obviously scream, um, pulls it off nicely because the chemistry ends up working. But, you know, if you if you're sticking all the talents that you are into something like the House on Haunted Hill remake, it doesn't always work. There are good things about that movie, but the ensemble is not necessarily one of them. Um, and right. I think that this, in this particular case with Stage Fright, you have a lot of people that uh, Hitchcock, one, had never worked with um, apart from Pat Hitchcock, but two, people that you just, it, it's almost kind of like a blender cast to a certain extent because everybody fits their role fine. It's just that, it feels off somehow because you don't have anything tangible to hold on to in the hitch connection. Um, right. The the thing that you would have to go on for it is the theme, the tone and the camera work of the movie to obviously suggest that this is a movie by me. I mean, I, I, I can shoot it pretty. It doesn't matter who I put in the fucking frame. Like I know how to fucking shoot it. So, you know, you've got Gene Wyman in the film basically playing a mousier character and then on the complete opposite end, you have eternal badass Marlene Dietrich. Um, if anybody does not know who Marlene Dietrich is, but has seen Blazing Saddles and knows of the Bavarian bombshell herself, Lily von Stoop, then you know who Marlene Dietrich essentially is as a screen presence. Um, she was a uh, an actress who came from Berlin. Uh, who uh, basically got a contract with Paramount after a film called The Blue Angel in 1930, um, which brought her acclaim. And she starred in many films, none the, not the least of which is her work with von Sternberg with films like Morocco, Shanghai Express. Um, and she she was a, uh, a, a, a she she had a way of delivering it that was both sultry and sexy, but also felt like you were wasting her time. <laughs> And I'm sure as you saw in this film, Matt, she does not want to be bothered by anybody. <laughs> I know. Like, I, I, I'm just like, wow, gee, I, learned, I I guess I figured out where every overdramatic person in my life, you know, got their inspiration from. <laughs> no, I, 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 for real, though, like, I did kind of, like, enjoy it the way she made her character because it felt really kind of, like silly in a, in a way like not silly like as in like it ruined the quality of the film in any sort of way mm -hmm. but it's just like it, it was definitely just like very diva-esque she did it perfectly it felt right at home just like just like oh god i don't know what i'm gonna do yeah well, <laughs> like, well, i will i will tell you like dietrich every time i've watched dietrich i'm 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 amazed by how much she pulls off because it it's not that she plays the same character each time, but there are there are obviously like any actor in Hol Golden Age Hollywood traits that carry over. Um, obviously, a good musical number by Cole Porter in here is a throwback to every other time she's had to sing on film. And you know her 
her ability to hold herself up and basically be, I know we, I know I described her early on as like her vile and wicked, you know, um, uh, plot in this movie. But the truth is, is that the character is, it, it ha, plays it with a little bit of an independence. Now, albeit it's through the lens, uh, the very outdated lens of, uh, a woman who can't be trusted or a, or a greedy woman who only like a, 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 who only thinks of herself and that diva element that you're talking about. But there is an air of independence going like, I kind of want Marlene Dietrich to get away with it. I, I don't know what that says about me, yeah. but I'm like, I, go for it, girl. Like, I don't, I, I th- go you. Yeah, you're right. Do it. <laughs> like well, play and, these and men for not, fools. Not, well, <laughs> and, it, and it's not, it's not even just because of like, I, I think the reason that you want her to kind of like get away with it isn't really because like she's, you know, like it, like I guess what I'm trying to say is like because it's conflicted, right? Because she's like is the villain, she's over dramatic. You know, why would you want Corella Deville to win? But in this case, it's not Corella Deville. Like she was really good at being this diva, but keeping the human quality of why she's a diva. Like you can't like in in more or less terms, you relate to her because you know she she kind of realizes that in some facets that she feels like she was alone in the world that she was born in for so long. And so you might as well be extra special. You might as well act how special you feel you actually are, you know? And so, and so she realized kind of her value, what it is. And I guess where the horror would kind of fit in on that is that she, she valued her so much that she's willing to just sacrifice her own character Mm -hmm. for her own salvation. You know, and and I think in some facets, although I'd like to think, you know, everybody listening hasn't like lied about, a, you know, uh, a murder or what have you. But I think in some facets, you know, we all wish to kind of protect ourselves in that way when we've had, you know, I mean, without getting like so like, you know, uh, gushy and what, you know, the top about it. But just like I think we've all related in some facet like that of, you know, knowing who we are and wanting to self you know, self-survive regardless of everyone else and regardless of, you know, the accusation against mm-hmm. accusations against us, you know, like this is just something that she can overcome and she knows she'll be able to overcome because she's already overcome so much. So what's, what's this? Yeah. You know, why, and, why is and this? I, and I'll tell you like that, the, the character as written and as performed by Miss Dietrich to me, um, really kind of boils into this, uh, this, element of the person who's lost the ability to understand what's right and what's wrong um within the scope of like well yes it's wrong but it's right for me and so they they confluence the two and we'll get to it when we get to the plot synopsis by the time we get to the end there there's a scene her last scene in the movie uh is appropriately described by peter bogdanovich as strange and yet I feel like it says the most about the character that you ever hear in the movie. And it's it weirdly kind of breaks down uh, a character that Dietrich has played before and would continue to play. Um, so but we'll jump right into it um, with this plot because there's there's a lot to go over, not the least of which would be, uh, amongst other things, the, um, uh, the 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 inherent plot of this film, because as we as we were talking earlier about the whole elements of horror in this film, Matt, we'll talk about it at some point, but there's another horror franchise that you could allude to with this film, but we can't talk about it now because that would be a spoiler, but I'll, I'll be, I'll remember to bring it up to you and I'll see if you caught it as well as I did. 
But um, okay. we open up. Um, we open up in the middle of basically. Well, actually, no. First, the curtain rises. The safety curtain rises and gives us the setting of London. It's Hitchcock basically going. It's a theater piece. <laughs> <laughs> look at look at just how so much you know. this just so you know this movie's about the theater <laughs> now i'm being patrick stewart again this impression keeps melding way too far um but uh no it's it's actually i think it's one of the coolest intros to a hitchcock movie uh that it's funny this visual angle is then later re uh redone perfectly for rear window uh, with the idea of the uh, the shades on a window being opened as the credits roll. Um, and so this is sort of similar imagery that we get here. But we open up in London, and we open up with a car driving recklessly down the road. Now, uh, a little production fact, the, the, the car is supposed to be driven by Eve Gill, um, w- carrying um, Jonathan Cooper, played by Richard Todd, um, and... Uh, the the car scenes where Jane Wyman's supposed to be driving the car, um, Hitchcock was did not want to hurt or like basically put um, Jane Wyman in danger. So Hitchcock said, "Hey, Pat, come on over here." He goes to his daughter and says, "Do you want to do the danger driving?" And Pat Hitch Pat Hitchcock said, "Fuck yeah!" and did basically Jane Wyman's stunt work for that scene. <laughs> that is. <laughs> That is such a cool little fact that I did not know until uh, reading into this film. That's so cool. Like she, Pat Hitchcock doesn't get talked a lot about on this show, but she essentially is like the third cog in the Hitchcock wheel at a certain point for the production of these films because she's kind of all over the place. And she also manages to be the last like direct historian to a certain extent for the Hitchcock legacy. So she's kind of like a, like a, a a a multitude of badassery roaming around inside just Pat Hitchcock. It's pretty fucking phenomenal. Um, and also, if you it, when you watch the film, you'll notice that danger that driving is reckless, and <laughs> she is clearly not driving carefully. But they're driving in the car, and Jonathan Cooper basically says, um, you know, uh, like he explains why he's been having to be picked up by Eve is because Charlotte Inwood is in trouble. And we get to our flashback uh, for the movie. And Charlotte Inwood, played by Marlene Dietrich, by the way, and we get our first instance of the blood on the dress, which is a big factor throughout the movie. Um, uh, And essentially, Charlotte comes to Jonathan and says, Oh, darling, I, 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 I killed my husband. Uh, I didn't mean to, but I did it, and now I'm in trouble, and you need to help me. And so uh, Johnny essentially proceeds to cover up by pretending, by basically going back to her house to stage it as a burglary, only to be noticed by the maid um, as he's escaping the scene. And so that's where we start at the beginning of this film. Basically, Marlene Dietrich putting uh, Jonathan Cooper up to the task of covering up her crime. Um, and then, so essentially, that that the this whole flashback scene basically accounts for the love story between Charlotte and Jonathan, and it's even clear from the first moments of their interactions 
that Charlotte is playing Jonathan for a fool. Like it's it's weird to say, but Marlene Dietrich's performance is very readable. And it's not a but it doesn't um detract from her performance, I don't think. Right. And by, this by, is this and, is actually one of those examples that was also used about um just kind of like where they because they didn't really do much work, you know, too much together that where it got a little weird. And this is where I just found this is like one of the examples I found to be a little divisive amongst uh, film critics is that uh, that in itself, the actual nature of how she's acting it out adds more to it with what the actual film is going for. But because we, you know, I guess more so at the time and now also now that, you know, Hitchcock had his like number of people that he liked to go to for putting in his movies. Um, brought that kind of bias to it with it with like well it, she's just not integrating well within a hitchcock narrative you know and so i would argue at that point if that is the criticism that you know someone would make towards it that it's more so that hitchcock took on doing this movie is which we can uh, coming back to the horror aesthetic of it too which could be argued as technically his first horror film you know like his first actual dive into really you know seeing what he do with horror um working with elements that he like he even did some like cinema devices in this film that were like pissed people off back in the day you know and, mm-hmm. and he regretted doing it Yep. Um, yep. 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 We we can't talk about it yet. <laughs> no, I will. I won't. I I promise I won't spoil that. But <laughs> with that in mind, though, he worked with things that were new to him, and each you know Hitchcock has his ego. You know, he's he, if if he if he's gonna admit it, he will. If he doesn't want to admit it, he'll argue with it till uh, you know he's dead in the ground. Good news is, guess what? Um. So with that in mind. <laughs> You know, it's it's just re- it, it, this is just one of those scenes that I just wanted to point out that as well. That was just really kind of a very what were they going for and how yeah. was it actually received? And is it actually still pointing as being a staple to the film itself now? No, no. Yeah. And it, and, and what's 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 great about what I will say, what what is undeniably great about her performance, especially when we find out what we find out that she it's weird, like, the the beginning of this movie thrusts you not just into a flashback, but also into basically the summation of one of these, like, potboiler stories. And so the remainder of the movie is trying to solve the, the potboiler for a long period of time. But, like, we get this, like, really weird, interesting setup that speeds along rather quickly because... So he goes back to her house... Um, tries to you know get her a new dress because she has to still go on stage. By the way, we should point out Charlotte Inwood must perform regardless yes. of any murder that has occurred. The show must go on. I don't it's, care if you're losing a limb or not. Not 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 until the uh the um uh the the uh, incredibly horrifying crimes of Velma Kelly in Chicago do we get the diva that is. <laughs> Charlotte Inwood, I I just killed my husband, but I must perform. <laughs> it's, it's it's a really interesting conversation that's had about like she's a she she's playing the the angle of like well no I shouldn't go on and then Jonathan's because he's so in love with her is like no you must go on you must go on I'm like <laughs> Jonathan is is just like flat out like like under a spell here and it is redonkulous. Yeah. <laughs> 
it's it's more so than any other kind of movie you see of this nature where like a man is desperately in love with a woman who is like like by by the definitions of its era like supposed to be this impossible woman and it's like yeah. it's so like it, it works with hitchcock i think because it is a little over the top and wink it's not winking, but it is kind of nudging you a little bit, going like, <laughs> and you see, because he's 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 just too damn in love with her, and that's the problem. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, and and you could also, uh, I don't know if I would make the argument, but you could also see kind of like the influence of horror within that as well as, um, I mean, uh, again, in horror films, I, I can I can't even tell you how many movies you know go into the love becoming an obsession you know, yeah, element yes. to, you know, them acting it out in some sort of way. I mean, he, he even kind of continues that if you really want to, like, kind of dive into it. Like, if you look at Psycho, you know, in a sense, he continues that same obsession, motivation for a character with Norman Bates and his mom, That you know. Yep. Um, and so <clears throat> a much more darker example, but you still see the same theme, just, you know, yeah. creepier. <laughs> oh yeah, no, and and I'm glad you brought that up because I'm gonna I'm gonna bookmark that too because that that the comparison to Psycho is very very uh you're not the only one who brought this up but I'm glad you brought it up because it is a very astute point. Um, well, well, I mean, how can we not look at Psycho and be like, dude, he had a crush on his mom, like yeah, yeah. like. <laughs> How could you? I mean, you can't watch that movie. You can't watch Bates Motel and not think that. Well, yeah, well, yeah, and that's and that's been the permeating thought. That, that's the permeating theme throughout Psycho is this Oedipus complex that falls within that. Stefano's talked about it openly on every behind the scenes you can imagine of like it because it's it, it. I don't know if you've ever seen Mick Garris's Psycho for the beginning, but that's what the movie is. The movie is basically Norman you know, had an unhealthy relationship with his mother. And by unhealthy, I mean unhealthy. <laughs> and, yeah. and that, but like, and that, that, that even permeates psycho without having a psycho for the beginning. Um, yeah. uh, or even a Bates motel. Although if you guys haven't watched Bates motel, the show, watch Bates motel, the show, it's really good. You'd be surprised how wrong you'd be in assuming it's terrible because you'd be wrong. It's amazing. Um, oh yeah, it, 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 the the worst thing about that show is that it was marketed as a very cliched TV drama. Yeah, um, but yeah. If you, if, if you give it a chance, it actually does dive in really well. Oh, and yeah. I just yeah. also love the actors in that show because they are just fantastic. And, and it insane. pulls and it pulls absolutely no punches. Like that show oh, refuses to back down on anything it's doing, and if anything, it doubles down. <laughs> like well, and, and again, it's it's Vera Farmiga, who we already said on our show. In my opinion, is a, a modern day scream queen in the making. Um, yeah, along with a few other notable names too. But even Freddie Highmore, his his acting in that film was such a or not i'm sorry in that show was such a you know uh, opposite direction of what the movies he was in prior and the like just he, they nailed it perfectly man so it's, it's definitely like if you like psycho in any sort of facet um or you or you like you know hitchcock's filmography just check out bates motel it's it's worth your time yes and and i this is hitchcock again i do approve of bates motel it's it's wonderful <laughs> viewing up here when i'm just kicking back and relaxing and i do appreciate that they homage me in their own way like i'm glad they didn't try to copy me because they don't try to fucking copy me like not for your amc tv or your a and e tv show whatever it is i uh, but i'm glad that you did what you did and i'm I'm happy for you bravo yeah, uh, the, the last time that hitchcock was copied was 
Let, Psycho let, let, again with Vince Vaughn, and that went let, great. Let, let me tell you something, because I liked that good. I liked that Goodwill Hunting movie. We saw it up here. It's it's magnificent. But if Gus Van Sant ever touches another one of my movies again, I'm I'm going to beat the shit out of him when he gets up here. I, you know, like you know, people make fun of me for my weight, but I am about as effective as a wrestler as Dwayne the Rock Johnson. So I can just body slam that fool like it's no fucking business. Um, you know, I'm totally just gonna like load up my copy of WWE 2K18 at this point just to make a just to make an Alfred Hitchcock wrestler. So. Do it. Take a photo and send it to us. <laughs> yeah, just uh, and it's and he's totally gonna enter like like a no DQ tables, ladders, and chairs match with like like fucking Sting and Stone Cold and Undertaker and The Rock and I'm like oh my god a surprise wrestler it's Hitchcock it's Hitchcock it just comes like, out with a rock out. version of his theme song <laughs> yeah could you imagine just seeing him running out in his suit and just like picks up and suplexes freaking Undertaker like like yeah, I'm down for that <laughs> he's got a little bird he's got a little plush bird that he has perched on his shoulder when he does it <laughs> if if they program the game the way that I would love it to be programmed, I would love to give them the attack of just like chucking birds at people. So, like this worked for Tippy, it's going to work for freaking Stone Cold. <laughs> this is amazing. <laughs> um, but anyway, the plot of this movie. <laughs> um, okay. Sorry, sorry, sorry. No, 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 it's fine because I wanted to know that in my head now and now I've got it in my head. Hitchcock as a res- as a WWE wrestler. I'm I think he would have smacked the hell out of Vince McMahon for the way he acts. But anyway, um I started but, uh, so, this. So so yeah, oh god. Like, I'm god. the king no, of acting like look, this. Look, How dare you? Look, sorry yeah. Vince, the XFL is a stupid fucking idea and you're a stupid person for trying to do it. Like <laughs> Is, is anyone even watching Vince? No, no, no. Exactly. No one was fucking watching. No one was ever going to fucking watch. They like their other football right over here. You do wrestling. Do that. Um, um, but uh, so anyway, the the whole flashback essentially reveals that within this, that Johnny or Jonathan, um, uh, it, it's it's clear that he has been witnessed by the maid. And he goes through in his head the likelihood of that happening, none the least of which is the maid telling the cops what's going on in this montage of like this like dream sequence, but also the phone book being pulled out and <laughs> going through his name. I thought this was like a great touch. And it's something like for the kids who are listening to this 50 years down the line, you used to have to look up at a phone book to find a phone number because sometimes you didn't have a cell phone. In fact, in 1950, you didn't have that at all. You had a rotary phone. You had to look up the numbers and you had to dial them like a human being. Um, so he thinks he's going to leave and he starts to grab a suitcase, but then he looks out the window and sees there's two cops waiting for him. And so he just puts his suitcase away, which I thought was actually a really cool touch of just like, no, if I'm going to play it smart, I better not have my suitcase out because then they'll be like, what, what, you going on a trip, Gavna? Like, <laughs> about ready to leave? And so he goes out. He's trying to leave without them noticing him. And they come up to the door and they say, we want to speak with you. And then he basically says, why, certainly. And then he just bolts, gets in his car and drives off after the cops have smashed the safety glass. And uh, he drives to um, uh, the the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art or RADA, as it's called by the woman who gives him information over the phone 
as to how to find Eve Gill. And he interrupts Eve Gill in the middle of a performance, um, rather rudely, I'd say. For an actor to interrupt another actor in the middle of their scene is uh, uh, quite makes you quite a garbage person. <laughs> yeah. And we, I was just gonna say, I think this was all. Um, uh, I wasn't able to go. This is where my research kind of stopped a little bit, and I just went back to watch more of the movie. Um, but like, I think this is also kind of like one of those moments where it's just like, uh, it is it good? Really? Is it a good film because this is in it? Or is it good because like the raw human nature of that was captured, you know? Yeah. Uh, and so it's definitely what another divisive piece of, of what regards this film being, you know, a classic or not. Right. Well, and I will say within the legacy of this film, like as we are going along, you'll see how there are uneven parts that would make you understand why it's not as memorable as other Hitchcock films. However, there is so much that works here that I think that it would be a crime to ignore it. Um, and, and the one yeah. thing, and the one thing we can bring up about Johnny right now is that for how much Marlene Dietrich's Charlotte is uh, twisting him around, I'm going to argue that Johnny's probably worse at this game too, because it's, He's basically doing the same thing that Charlotte's doing to him, but it it looks terrible because he he is he is essentially like using and abusing Eve throughout the entirety of his scenes with her. Like it's it's rather unsettling even from frame 1 how he's using her and taking advantage of her. And it's it, I I got this like modern day vibe of like ew. Like <laughs> um but the regard, regard, it, yeah, I mean, and we've talked about like you know the, the that treatment in films before, but like the the his he's just a seedy asshole. But regardless, she loves him. That's the thing. She loves him, and that's unfortunately why she decides to help him hide <laughs> by taking taking him to her father's boat, and. We're gonna enter in the one and or, uh, the one and only Commodore Gill, played by Alistair Sim. Now, Matt, I'm gonna ask you: Are you familiar with Alistair Sim beyond this movie? So I, I actually did look up a little more of Alistair Sim because I was like, this dude is really recognizable to me, and I can never figure out the reason why. Like I was like, and I didn't know if it was just that like he looked similar to to Alistair. Uh, excuse me. Uh, actors that I already knew, you know, or that I kind of like, uh, just, just really adored. And it took me a while to figure out why this dude really stood out to me. And then like, the more I was doing my research, I was like, bah, hubking bumbug, no fucking way. Like, that's right. <laughs> I was that's like, right. I was like, wait a minute. That's right. So like, so I didn't realize, like, it was like, what a, it was a surreal thing because it's like, I didn't, obviously I never knew the guy. But I, I knew him from a movie that is so big and so recognized and remade so much that I just couldn't see him in a film that was anything else but about fucking Christmas. <laughs> Matt, Matt, you don't you don't get it. Like, I'm, I'm Alistair fucking Sim. Like, how did you not know that I was Ebenezer Scrooge? Well, and that's just what I mean. Like, I just like it was just uh, it's just one of those, and I, I kind of like talking about like Freddie Highmore doing something that was kind of a little more out of his realm. Like, yeah. I just I, I I mean not like I watch all of Alistair Slim's movies, but just like again like a Christmas yeah, no. Carol, yeah. like 
Like, if we could just kind of, like, for a minute forget that there's, like, 50 Christmas Carol movies and just pretend oh, yeah, this yeah. is the only one, like, yeah, and this yeah. is the only there's... one that everyone's ever, oh, have always known, then it's just, like, it's just try to imagine in, 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 in you know, this horror-esque type of film is just it, it was just, it just, it was just something that, like, I, I couldn't piece together at first. And I was just like, holy shit, I think this, like, shut down my ADHD for a hot minute. They overloaded it. Yeah, and for those who and for those who don't know, and because now when we're talking about this particular Christmas Carol, we are talking about the Christmas Carol from 1951 that was titled Scrooge in Britain and released as a Christmas Carol over here. I have the Blu-ray myself, and it's a it it is a staple in the household for people up to about our age. Um, I'd want to say like like maybe like ninety five's the the. The capper, because I also grew up with Muppet Christmas Carol, so I had various different Christmas Carol influences in my life. But Alistair Sim is the one that, like, if you know Alistair Sim from anything, you know him for playing Ebenezer Scrooge in that Christmas Carol movie. But he was also uh, an adept comic actor. Um, he was a Scottish actor who um, became a popular performer for the West End Theater in films like The Bell of St. Trinan's and An Inspector Calls and The Happiest Days of Your Life. Um, and the role he's playing here, um, it, it is, it is goofy dad is, is, I think the proper terminology is that he's goofy dad. <laughs> like, there's not any other way to put it. So like basically even Johnny are sneaking around the house and then <laughs> Alistair, uh, uh, Commodore Gill opens the door and says, I just come on inside. <laughs> he's, He's just like, like, yeah, he did have a very dad, a very nourishing, like, atmosphere to him. Like, uh, coming back to the scene where I was talking about with the blood stain, like, prior to him noticing that, like, he's even talking to Eve, just like, why aren't you on there? Why don't you just go up there? You're great. You know, <laughs> something that, like, encouraging words that, like, a dad or somebody who's compassionate or nourishing would say, like, go on, get up there, do it now. Yeah. And and we and also this 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 film being set in Britain also has a bit of a British thing. Now it, it should be pointed out that Hitchcock doesn't particularly love how Alistair Sim portrayed it. He talks about it in the Hitchcock Truffaut book. I'm going to disagree with Hitchcock because anytime you put Alistair Sim in something, it's it's at the very least worth watching. Now, does it work in this movie? It's debatable. I think that he falls in line with other Hitchcock side characters that pull this same thing off. Um, the difference being is that it is Commodore Gill is a very active character in this movie, more so than you'd think he would be. Um, and, and we'll find out as we go along, but you know, he, they, they bring Johnny into the house. He's sleeping. He's fainted. He's, you know, he's exhausted from being such a dick and um and it's and, an exhausting job it takes a oh lot. yeah no you, it you needs know, to be a union you know manipulating a manipulating a, a a a friend's emotions and you know like trying to cover up for the crimes of a person who's abusing you like you know being a dick's a hard job man like i totally agree um but it's and, an exhausting job it takes a lot out of you there needs to be a union oh oh jonathan cooper is our president. Okay. Um, <laughs> oh God, help us, please. Anyway, we're we're so basically Commodore Gill asks the question, 
I ask when I first see this movie back in college and still ask to this day, why are you helping this asshole? <laughs> and her response is of a schoolgirl crush of the nature of just like he makes me he makes me feel so you know, it makes me feel so full and whatnot. We also get a lot of information about her why she's an actress, why she why why she does what she does. It's explained that she her father and her mother don't live together. Her father's kind of aroused about Commodore Gill's Commodore Gill is the kind of guy who thinks he's um a a daring a daring, uh, a, a daring uh, rascally cl- criminal because he smuggled two cases of brandy <laughs> illegally when in, in fact he's a goofy dad <laughs> and, um but he but regardless he basically is trying to figure out with her well what why is he even here what's wh- why would he wh- why would we, why would he basically cover up for her and how do we know that charlotte isn't framing him which is a valid question at this point and as they're doing that he is woken up and they have the idea of saying like well let's just take the bloody dress to the police and have johnny explain what's going on and we get our first uh rather telling clue about Johnny's personality at the very least, which is he refuses the plan and tosses that dress into the fire. So just destroying the only evidence that could clear uh, Johnny. Um, And then he feigns it off as, I'm sorry, I'm so excited. I don't know what I'm doing. And then he gets brought up to bed and Commodore Gill says like, Hey, if you, (laughs) if you get bored and want to read anything, there's some good murder mystery novels up there. (laughs) And, uh, and then they basically divide. Eve devises a plan with her father of basically like I'm gonna go down there and basically confront uh, Charlotte and find out the answers. And he keeps saying no, no, no. She's a dangerous woman. Don't do it. She's a she's too dangerous a woman. No, no, no. Um, but. You know, they they sleep it off to think it over. She wakes up the next morning. Um, Commodore Gill, up to this point, has been playing an accordion and acting like a goofy dad, as I said before. He fell asleep with the accordion in his in his hands um, in a rather comical fashion. Now, this is one of those things that I think is a little too slapsticky for Hitchcock of having somebody with an instrument that they fell asleep with and then, like, that being a point of, like, taking the instrument out of his hand. But... I don't mind it. It's not distracting from anything. It's part of his character. Um, So she leaves and she gets a note from her father saying she's a dangerous woman. Be careful. So basically alluding to like he doesn't want her to do this, but she he knows she's going to do it because of who she is as a person. Um, So she goes back to Charlotte's house and it's swarmed by police and she can't get in. So she goes across the street to a bar and essentially scouts it out, presumably trying to find the maid who witnessed Johnny leaving the house. Um, and in that time, she has drinks with, well, I should say before she has drinks with our character that we're going to meet here, she gets annoyed the shit out of by a by a rather jowly man with glasses <laughs> who doesn't know what social cues are <laughs> and essentially shoves him off but then enter the dashing 
dashing Michael Wilding, um, who plays none other than Detective Inspector Wilfred O. Smith. But we like to just call him Smith because he's ashamed of the name Wilfred. <laughs> he does not like his first name, Matt. It is. I don't know why. Wilfred's a charming name. Wilfred? <laughs> I mean, it, it's, it definitely I mean, beats out a chubby for me. Oh, yeah. No, 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 no. Wilfred Smith. Is a man you'll marry your daughter to? You know, um, uh, the but, worst that I if if my daughter was going to marry somebody by the name of Wilfred Smith, uh, the only thing I'd be worried about him doing is just is just nagging her on the exact uh, length of of growth of grass that you need for uh, a substantial looking yard. So, <laughs> Wilfred Smith doesn't sound very uh, you know uh, threatening. No, 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 no. He's he's he, it's. He's not going to be put in any diehard scenarios uh, down the line with marriage. So, <laughs> like, <laughs> you, 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 I'm detected, Wilfred. I'm, I'm supposed to be here. Yippee Kaye, motherfucker. <laughs> um, but they, they meet at the where, bar. There, where there's a will, the there's a Fred. <laughs> if, if he was going to be a vigilante, that would be his tag. <laughs> where there's a will, there's a Fred. <laughs> Who are you? I'm Wilfred. <laughs> I don't know if you're here to end me or save me. <laughs> you, you just couldn't let me go, could you, Wilfred? I think you and I are destined to do this forever. <laughs> Recast, please, please, Warner Brothers, we're bored in quarantine. Redo the Christopher Nolan Batman movies, but change his name from Bruce to Wilfred. <laughs> Just do it. I don't care anymore. Um, but so, at any rate, uh, they have a discussion and they kind of have a little bit of a meet cute, essentially. Like that, that, not too discom- not too uncommon for a Hitchcock movie. You know, sometimes the detective falls in love with the girl. This is also normal detective movies. Um, but <clears throat> she meets him they agree to have t- afternoon tea and then as they're having their conversation the maid walks in and basically tells her patrons at the bar that she's not going to tell anybody about her experience because she's waiting to to get on the stand and be the star witness of the trial so you know if if you need alluded shades to this you know look towards any you know high profile criminal case within the tw- the latter half of the 20th century where you know, a star witness could have their own freaking uh, book written about them or a profile about them in the New York Times. Um, so essentially, she goes back to the bar and cuts a deal with this maid, which is you tell Charlotte that I'm your cousin who's coming to relieve you because you're sick. And I will basically dig up stories about the murder for my paper but in, in fact, she's just going to play that acting role to the hilt that she's been training for at the RADA uh, to uncover the plot of Charlotte Inwood and basically save Johnny's life. So that's what we're dealing with here is the going undercover as a different person. The difference is, is that she does not have to do the things that Martin Lawrence had to do in Big Mama's house. Um, <laughs> and as we'll find out in this movie, her disguise is not even close to anything. Um, and there's a reason for this in production history. Now, I don't know if you had read about this, Matt. As we discussed, Jane Wyman, 
is the star of this film and also Marlene Dietrich. Now, Dietrich is a bigger star, but she's obviously playing a smaller role in this film. I think it could be, uh, you know, absolutely, you know, solidified. Um, and uh, there's there, there's stories bandied about that, like, well, Marlene Dietrich said, like, I did a movie with Hitchcock. Jane Wyman was in it. And she, she only agreed to do it if she would have her name above me in the title. And uh, she got her way. But apparently Dietrich was a bit mothering to Wyman, according to Wyman's account, and was a little bit more or less judgmental the way a mother is. And, um, ha, see, mother, mother issues, there's references all over the place, guys. Um, but, um, the bigger, the bigger thing with this is that Dietrich, as there are, there are bigger, there are better sources for knowledge of Marlene Dietrich, but I will point out that she did not just act on the screen or sing. She was a consummate artist who ran the gamut throughout all the different facets of this industry and its art. She learned about lighting. She learned about art direction. She learned about makeup. She learned about the camera. She learned about lighting. She knew how to be lit. And there is there is so much so to the point where there's a story where the cinematographer of Stage Fright, um, uh, one Wilkie Cooper, um, was basically told by Dietrich how she should be lit. And Wilkie Cooper went to go argue about this to Hitchcock and go like, do you know what, you know, Dietrich's asking me to do? And Hitchcock essentially gave the answer of like, so fucking do it then, Wilkie. Jesus fucking Christ. <laughs> like, <laughs> Because Hitchcock understood that Dietrich was an artist in her own right and actually gave her a lot of freedom to do the things that she wanted to do. So consequently, Hitchcock is known for being a lot more restrictive with his actors when it comes to, and we're not even talking about the things that we've discussed in the past with the birds. We're talking about basically like they're not allowed to basically ad lib or um, stray away from things that are constructed within the frame. Like you can do the the choices you want in the frame, but you can't deviate from everything that's been set up in the pre-production, right? Um, and not and. You know, other directors do this too. Like Fincher's notorious for this. Like you've got to do it his way, and you've got to do it ninety times. But um, in the case of Jane Wyman's appearances in the film and her disguises as the maid, it seems that Wyman was a little self-conscious because she was playing the mousier character, whereas Dietrich was playing this glamorous, you know, uh, 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 actress character. And so when they would see the rushes, Wyman apparently got self-conscious about it and kept changing the appearance. It's why her disguise as the maid is inconsistent in this movie (laughs) is because it kind of kept changing. And it also kind of explains the scene where she's basically trying on the disguise of putting on glasses and whatnot and then having it basically blow back in her face when her mother recognizes her anyway. Um, so that, so it's an interesting little tidbit into this film and how the disguise itself works, because at this point the film will rely on not her looking different, but sounding different and also relying on the fact that not everybody knows exactly who she is. Um, so she get she goes in to meet Marlene Dietrich and <laughs> Marlene, Charlotte, Marlene Dietrich's character, Charlotte Inwood is basically being, dress made for the funeral of her late husband (laughs) 
it uh, it extends to the fact that she does not like to be depressed about this. She explicitly states the moment she meets uh, Eve, um, basically uh, disguised as one Doris Tinsdale. That's another great <laughs> name for your child, Doris Tinsdale. Um, but uh, she uh, basically, like, she says she's she's debating with her um, uh, uh, with her manager partner Freddie Williams about going to a theater garden party after the funeral. They were basically going to happen like one after the other. And so she's basically playing around in the realm of of just like, I don't want to go to the funeral anyway because I'll be depressed. And the theater garden won't depress me. But she's worried about how will it look if she goes to that party after the funeral. And uh, they're, they're bickering over it. And <clears throat> as she meets Charlotte for the first time, Charlotte tells Doris, a.k.a. Eve, um, like basically just lets out her personality and what she'll be as as a boss, which is essentially the devil wears Prada. (laughs) That notion of the 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 boss from hell kind of thing. Um, And as they're kind of having their banter back and forth, um, uh, Charlotte is informed that the police want to talk to her again. And she um, is informed also of the names of the detectives, one of them being Inspector Detective Smith. Uh Uh-oh, Wilfred's coming in, but Eve doesn't want Wilfred to know what she's doing. So Charlotte solves the problem because Charlotte just wants to get rid of these cops anyway. She basically tells Doris, like, you go into the room, other room, and when I cough, you you come in from the other room and tell them that I've got the doctor coming. So the police are brought in, they interview her and she lies on her divan head back in the most dramatic fashion imaginable. Like the lighting on this is incredible on Dietrich. It's so over the top. It's so wonderful to watch, (laughs) to watch her basically being like, I don't know. I don't know anything about about this Johnny. I don't know nothing about this murder. And it's just, there's a wink in the eye that I, that I detect from this film coming from that moment of her just lying on the divan, the way it's so overly lit. Um, and then she gets, she basically gets the call. Um, and then she leaves and then (laughs) Eve, uh, leaves to go meet detective Smith for that afternoon tea. (laughs) And we get the introduction of uh, Eve's mom, played by none other than um, uh, Sybil Thorndike. Uh, Sybil Thorndike, uh, another great name, by the way. Um, she was an actress who um, was a, a, a an accomplished British actress who wrote, uh, who amongst other things, was in uh, things like Saint Joan, which Bernard Shaw wrote especially for her. Um, and received many, many honors. And she basically follows in line with the tradition of Hitchcock moms that are either aloof, um, uh, overbearing, or a combination of those plus dead in a fruit cellar. <laughs> um, and, and we're talking about, like, uh, she, she just basically is in denial of anything going on, so much so that when they have that conversation... You know, like at that with with the detective and then Commodore Gill coming back into it, she's just not believing 
that her daughter would meet somebody at random or whatever. Like the whole, the, the conversation that I, you know, thought was most telling was like the whole, like, you know, like how, when did you meet my daughter? Well, I've only known her a day and a half. Oh, well, that's not a very long time. And when did you meet? And you're like, well, we met at a pub across the street. <laughs> it's like, oh, that's interesting. So again, we're dealing with overtly patrician values. Obviously, this is not how we, you know, generally think today. Although meeting somebody at a bar one day and then inviting them to your parents' house for tea the next day is a bit abrupt. Like I can't, <laughs> I can't imagine that's how most relationships form over the course of the uh, uh, of the modern era and whatnot. But I guess also to keep in mind, we're in the middle of a pandemic and chaos is reigning. So I guess the rules are out the book at this point. <laughs> <laughs> um, but um, so, but anyway, as the story progresses, they basically get back to the theater and we see Marlene Dietrich do this wonderful musical number um, the laziest gal in town. Um, I wish I had the ability legally to play the entire song for you guys in this episode. I, I will put in a little clip of it, but, uh, Matt, are you familiar with blazing saddles? <laughs> of course I am. It's so uh, you, it's, I still, I still kind of wonder if it would actually still be considered a very funny movie based on some of the things that some of the humor in there. Oh, um, obvious, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, well, and it's it's a debate. I think I think Blazing Saddles is a debate that will carry on for a for a bit in the coming years. But I love Mel Brooks, so I'm I'm inclined to uh, be a, a bit more of a defender of that film. And I still find it to be a very funny film. But if you remember Madeline Kahn's Academy Award nominated performance as Lily von Stoop <laughs> in that movie. It's basically this musical number. <laughs> this very, very Marlene Dietrich-esque music number that where she's basically describing her approach to acting <laughs> in the song. And I, I, for one, one of my favorite behind-the-scenes stories, or at least um, anecdotes is from Peter Bogdanovich, Ascot and all, talking about how he saw Marlena Dietrich perform this song in Denver, at a concert in Denver. And he she sang this song, and she introduced it by going, this is a song I, I sung for Mr. Hitchcock. And then she went into the song, and, she, and he says, and she was, she was lazy about it, but it was a beautiful lazy. <laughs> And it's just wonderful to like see this musical number, this song written by Cole Porter, the great Cole Porter, um, and to be done in this way that really, along with the final scene of hers, really does sum up her character and her how she's aware that she's the most beautiful woman in the room and everybody wants her, which... You know, if we're going to talk about D Marlene Dietrich as a performer, obviously this is something she's used to doing. But you can't imagine my what was going on in my head. Now, when you were on the show last, we talked about Rob Zombie and uh, specifically talking about like him deviating from his uh, normal fare. 
But I was immediately also brought back from a horror prosthetic to Baby's musical number in fucking House of a Thousand Corpses, <laughs> where she's intentionally, you know, just vamping it up. And it was like, it was like actually made me appreciate what she does in that scene a little bit more because I'm like, oh, they're drawing off of Dietrich. It's not just that one performance in Blazing Saddles. Um, oh yeah, um, yeah. And you know, man, careful there. Careful what? Careful how much praise you give to Sherry Moon. Depending where you say that in the horror community, you might give everyone a triggering effect because they uh, there's there's a definite huge distaste for Sherry Moon, oh, just as much as there is a love for. Oh her. yeah. Well, I, I'll 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 point out my defending point on Sherry Moon Zombie for posterity is that. For what she is given to do, I think she does it admirably. Um, that's that's where I that's where I draw my line on it. Um, there are there are there are roles she's done that I'm not a fan of, but there are roles that she's done that I like. Um, I think she's good as Baby in um, House of a Thousand and Devils Rejects. I still have not seen Three from Hell um, in the Halloween movies. It's, it's, in the Halloween. It's, it's, it, it's okay. I mean, it doesn't really wrap up the story. No. So, yeah. I mean, uh, I, I, we can talk about the movie if you want, but. No, no, no. <laughs> well, no, we'll save that. We'll save that for the zombie retrospective that'll come in 50 years. And we'll just be old men <laughs> talking about, like, remember Rob Zombie? And you'll, and they'll be like, Grandpa, other Grandpa, nobody gives a shit about Rob Zombie anymore. <laughs> Um, this is in the future we're still podcasting over skype because the quarantine has just stayed in effect that long <laughs> um, um all right yeah uh, things are uh, hey you never know oh no oh absolutely i'm prepared to be a bubble boy um but uh but so but anyway like the but but in regards to like certain performances like her role in the halloween movies i wasn't a huge fan of like i think she's not my favorite part of those movies obviously but like i it's hard for me to you know ultimately bash an actor or an actress for attempting to do the job they're given. And I, and I think Sherry moon for somebody who's not traditionally an actor outside of working with her husband, I think she does just fine. I think if I was going to break it down analytically, I'd probably have to be a little bit harsher, but you know, like I, 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 I have a hard time giving it too much flack because I'm just like, man, like, could I do any better? <laughs> Because I certainly could not fit into the dresses that Sherry Moon Zombie can fit into. And I most certainly cannot wear blonde curls the way she could. So obviously there are things that Sherry Moon Zombie can do that I can't do. <laughs> which I don't think is an unfair assessment. But but regardless, like so we, we go back. She finishes this musical number. She goes back into the dressing room. And Johnny's there. And Johnny is a little uh, obsessed. Now we get a little bit of that taste of what you were talking about with the obsessions in horror films or like the the love obset the, the obsessions with a person in love in horror films which I'd argue a scene like this is something you definitely find not just of the era or even before it but you also find it way down the line in other obsessive love stories uh that trend into the horror uh dip their toes into the horror realm. Um, and in this particular scene, she basically brushes him off and said, like, look, thank you for taking the rap for me, but I'm going to continue being a star and you can just go ahead and hide now. And he plays he plays a card that he has no right to play yet, which is, well, I still have that dress with the blood stain on it. And 
he basically says, so long as I have that bloodstained dress, I control the show from now on. Um, so thus putting Charlotte into her own little trap with the dress. And this basically sets off her psychological reactions going forward, I would argue. Um, be- yeah. Because at this point, Charlotte is now a uh, in her own little trap, even though she set herself up for it. So it's kind of weird. Like it's it's a trap you weren't expecting, I guess, is what 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 you would point it out as. Um, and then Johnny gets away um, uh, after Eve eavesdrops on that conversation and then is asked to go back into the dressing room with the policeman. Johnny escapes. Um, and by the way, Eve pretending to faint is the best pretend fainting you'll ever see in a movie. Cause it's so obviously an, a fake faint. <laughs> like She does. The sound cue is, Oh no. <laughs> and then falling to the ground. And then she's, Basically, now the whole goal here is to get the detectives to realize that Charlotte should be a suspect. And the way they're going to execute this is essentially through uh, exposing her at the garden party or cornering her at the garden party by bringing Detective Smith um, onto the uh, into the um, uh, into the whole proceedings and basically getting him to realize that Charlotte is probably guilty. Um, so they drive over to the theater garden party where Eve's going to not only have to play the role of handing out programs for her Royal Dramatic Academy at this party, but also playing assistant to Charlotte. And she's in the car with David, um, or, or she's in the car with um, Wil- Wilfred O. Smith. And I, I'm, I'm trying to think, Matt, has there ever been a scene in a movie today. I'm not talking about back then or back in the fifties. Cause obviously you could kind of pull this off, but I'm trying to think of in a modern movie. Would you ever have an intimate embrace and kissing scene following the discussion of, Hey, my boss might be a murderer. <laughs> oh God. Yeah. I mean, it is, it, it's uh it's a common trope used in horror films, especially in like who done it especially the uh, the intense who done it ones that even like you know meld in like the psychological horror uh themes into it as well uh, so like uh, i wish i had like a great example on top of my head but like you see this all the time where a character who is holding the secret together or you know keeping something you know out of the narrative that you know the rest of the characters in the film aren't aware of um you know, when they get put into a vulnerable point, like being, you know, kissed and embraced in this case, um, then it show. then at that point, what the filmmakers is making that character relatable, showing that we're willing to let all of our secrets come out to the right person who can make us feel vulnerable, you know, right. and, and, you know, and, and that, and that, like, and that's a good, that, and I'm sorry, I was going to say, that's a good point. Because she's basically unloading her hesitations, even though Wilfred is basically so love blind that he looks like he's just been smacked around with goofy juice. Like the look on his face 
is one of your mighty purdy, ma'am. <laughs> it's yeah, you're you're you're, you're oh, Miss Miss Wyman, you were great in Johnny Belinda. I loved you in that. I know I'm supposed to be British, but for the purposes of this conversation, I'm from Texas. Like, <laughs> it's uh, it's it's a it's an interesting kissing scene that happens in that moment. Um, one that I, one that I thought was both very cute and adorable for the era, and also just like as a austerity point, because you are right. Those mystery films will have that vulnerability point where you do have, like the the two the the hero and the heroine, you know, like embracing each other, you know, falling in love bit by bit as they're trying to solve who beheaded the person in the in the at the party. But uh, it just felt very, it felt very interesting to see how that unfolds and how basically she, she basically is falling in love with him while also trying to use him at the same time. So in a sense, she's also using people the way Johnny's used people and the way Charlotte's used Johnny. So it's interesting how the, the cycle of this keeps going and spinning on and around and around when they get to the party and Eve's confronted by the maid who says, uh, you know, like I need more money. <laughs> you need to pay me more money for this job of staying low so that you can be in my boss's employ or I'm going to start squealing. So she calls her father, Commodore Gill, to get a, get a hold of whatever money he can and meet her at the garden party. And she goes to um, make up Charlotte Inwood. And Charlotte Inwood basically throws down the... Um, the 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 best insult in this movie while still trying to be supportive the line of cuz eve is decked out in a nice new gown she looks very nice she's she's dolled herself up i guess is the terminology i i mean she's she's pretty regardless of you know any dolling up she does but the um the bottom line is she does not look like the mousy character that she was prior and charlotte says is that a new dress and she or, or like, or what happened to that? What happened to that uh, hideous figure of yours? She's like, I got a new dress. He's just like, well, don't, don't, don't ever take it away. It does wonders for you, darling. And she says, I got it. I got it on discount. And she said, I didn't ask you for personal details. <laughs> There's this catty bitchiness coming out of Marlene Dietrich's mouth. It's just so wonderful. You just gotta love it because it's just like. It's a, it's so quick and yet spiteful and yet we're we've all been there. <laughs> it, and like so facet, we've all just wanted to do that. Be like, I don't need the detail. If there was a way yeah. to put all the stepsisters and the stepmother from Cinderella into one character, it's Marlene Dietrich in those few lines. <laughs> it just it's 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 amazing how it manages to uh, convey not just her character, but also when you read about how Wyman and uh, Dietrich interacted on set, it adds another layer of, ooh, this is juicy. <laughs> but, so uh, Commodore Gill gets to the party and he get, hands off the money to the blackmailing maid um, and they meet up and they're basically, Eve has not, basically convinced uh, 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 Smith yet 
that anything should be suspected of Charlotte. Like he's, she hasn't had the chance because she's had to play this duality role throughout the course of the party. And it, it, it sends to the big theme of the film, which is that she's an actor playing an actor, playing the role of a lifetime while having to play another role for another person. She's basically acting multiple lives in it. And it lends to the whole thread of, you know, being an actor uh, and the, the, the many roles you inhabit throughout that life. Consequently, Charlotte herself is playing a role throughout this entire movie, not in just in terms of her defending her innocence and her ignorance of the murder, but also her as a person. Um, so there's a lot of duality kind of brimming throughout the film. So Commodore Gill um, basically devises a plan to scare the living shit out of Marlene Dietrich. And he does it with that red dress again. But how does he do it, Matt? Well, so and you're asking about like the, the image, like the image of the of the saint, right? Yeah. 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 So like, like I kind of like already talked about. Um, like to me, how do I, how do I explain it? So, cause like, I, I never really looked into actually how they pulled off the effect and I'm kind of upset with myself that I didn't do it because that's something I love to do, but it was such, it was like, it's a quick second thing that you're just going to think like, it, it was like this weird blotch that they just left on a dress and then just like poorly edited out. Right. Right. Um, right. but what was smart about it. And what I thought, again, what I thought was cool about it is that this was doing something that modern horror films and even classics like, 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 uh, I want to say Poltergeist or even freaking Exorcist to an extent did. And that was they showed the thing that is haunting this individual. Yes. Whether yes. that is a trauma, whether that is an act of violence they committed and not mean to, or saw an act of violence, you know, what are, you know, it's 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 showing that the person's psyche isn't all there, that there is something holding it down, that there is a trauma that's there, and it's such a poignant small little scene that's so very easy to just be like, oh wow, that was cool, or or what was that chocolate stain all about, you know? Yeah. But if yeah. you if you take if you take that second to really think about it and just like. Oh, okay. They're talking about an actual somebody who's having a trigger right now. Yeah. Somebody yeah. who's actually going through like a really hard moment of oh, you know, something that he, a baggage that he cannot leave behind. Yeah. And yeah. It, it, again, uh, and so just like the effect of it was so again, and to me and, and what I love about my ADHD brain is that I can just analyze these things really well and to to a number extent fairly enough but is that it's just it's it was just such a smart thing to include within this film that makes it more of a dark film that makes it more of a horror film in that regard you know and so uh, it, it's what makes me love it because it's just it was just i know i always thought those type of scenes weren't really you know started to expand on until like you know the 70s or 80s and then seeing it like in this film yeah and the 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 scene in question with she gets revealed a doll with a blood stain all over it and it sends her into a shock. Now, when we talk about Charlotte's trauma with this, her trauma stems from the fact of what we saw in the scenes previous with Johnny basically saying, as long as I've got that red dress or that red stain, the blood stain dress, I'm in control of the show. And so 
that's what's triggering her, right? Now, now how we get that <laughs> that doll is, I, I I'd argue, Matt, it's one of my favorite scenes in the movie that has nothing to do with anything Hitchcockian, <laughs> because Commodore Sims wins this doll by shooting a uh, uh, basically going to a shooting gallery like the equivalent of a, an amusement park. We get this scene where the most British lady in the world <laughs> is basically telling Commodore Gill how to shoot one of these fake guns at the at the amusement park. And <laughs> I don't I I I, I want to bring it up before we brisk along to this plot because we're going to get to the meat of this film. But Joyce Gref- Grenfell is a noted character actor in Britain who played that overly British lady primarily because she had that overexpressive British smile or that British that look of like the teeth like she's sticking them out very quiet <laughs> like and she plays that role to a hilt but he wins the doll he cuts his finger in a scene that I felt was a little bit unnerving for the period um and smears the blood on the doll gives it to a kid kid brings it up to Marlene Dietrich and Marlene Dietrich sees the doll and she freaks out um, sending her into a tailspin um, and so now uh, she's basically she she she's having her little trauma moments and consequently this also this situation also outs Eve's character as being a double actor in everybody's world because now she's uh now now Smith knows that she's uh Doris the maid um so we go to a scene where basically Jane Wyman confesses to Smith all while this time Johnny has returned to um uh to Eve and is basically staying in Eve's parents' house um still continuing to hide from the uh, from the authorities and she breaks down confesses and then she and her father come up with a plan to trap uh, the uh, to trap Charlotte in her game uh, they basically want to get a confession and we set the stage if you will for the confession of a lifetime with this they set a microphone up in her dressing room in the empty theater and uh, are basically going to get the confession that way. And we get one of the most tense scenes between Dietrich and Wyman at this point. And essentially, we are revealed within this that she doesn't know anything because she's still holding to that story, but she's also willing to give up anything and everything in the world to keep her name out of this. So they're basically going to catch her on bribery charges. Or... And you also got to kind of like think that her character is such a devoted thespian to her art, you know, that and she's so devo- de- devoted to her art that she is able to kind of tap into it to meta act the ultimate, you know, uh, or not meta act, method act. Excuse me. I chose the wrong word. Yeah. Um, yeah. Method act, the ultimate method acting for well, this film, you know, for what would be the ultimate role, right. you know? And right. so you, you got to kind of wonder if she's actually starting to believe it be, because she's been acting it so much, you know, lying about it so much. 
And then you also got to kind of wonder at the same time that if she's too far gone, that she doesn't realize she's doing that, you know? Right. So, and, and we'll get, and we get a, a peek of that um, in, in a second here, but the, the basic bottom line is, is that they catch her in a trap of trying to bribe Wyman's character who has at this point unveiled all of her acting layers to reveal that she is just Eve and this is what she knows um, without basically without toying to the fact that she knows that the police are outside and uh, Charlotte leaves and the base, basically the police apprehend her. They keep her there and Charlotte played by Marlene Dietrich, as we've been saying throughout this whole episode goes into a monologue about the the people that don't love her and show affection back when she loves them unconditionally and it doesn't fully work for the story but it works for that character so it's very 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 odd situation because it explains a lot about her yeah and again like this is where, like, I consider the game to be pretty great, or not game, sorry, a movie to be pretty great, is that, coming back to, like, what I was talking about with, like, the character in the movie and how she, her motivations and, like, everything that she is trying to do to self-survive in this um, is almost, it's, it's really just kind of, I guess the way I want to describe it is that it's iconic in this scene is it the first movie to ever do something like this no but for the time how they did it and just coming back to like how you described with that very intense tense moment between the two of them um talking about the bribery like it it, uh, this this might be a little me over analyzing a little bit but i feel like you could see some of the actors on their faces legitimately being shocked you know kind of feeling like oh my god, like, did she actually bribe someone? Like, obviously, it's within the film, but it's delivered in such a well-thought-out way that it even just kind of, like, your attention and brings you right back to the severity of this character's ego. Yeah, and it, it, yeah, absolutely, and it not only does that, but it also, to my mind, it, it, it lays a foundation for what she's been experiencing the entire time. I think the, the, if I have only one problem with it is that it just feels like to end it, to end her character in that moment is a little strange, but as we're going to talk about with this finale, which it can kind of be not rushed through, but you know, like it's very simple Um, because her final moment needs to be that because there's a phone call that Smith makes uh, to the police and Commodore Gill goes like, well, you should have more than enough now to convict Charlotte of the murder. Um, and Smith points out, no, we know that Johnny killed her husband because, and he's killed before and he claimed it as self-defense, but we know he'll do it again. And at this point, Johnny has been appre- was already apprehended and bolted and he and Jane Wyman got down to the bottom of the theater and they're hiding in a stage uh, carriage and it's revealed that Johnny lied in the flashback. 
So yeah. I I told you that I would bring up another franchise that does flashbacks and twists them around. Um, it, it's called Saw, and and I oh really? I, I I was actually going to say that 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 sounded like more like M Night Shyamalan's wheelhouse yeah, it, of yeah, like it, doing it, twists. It, so but it, Saw's also a good example. Yeah, I think we're both right because this is Shyamalanian to a certain extent to be like no 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 none of it it all none of it happened. Yeah. Remember yeah. this thing that you thought was going to be the twist that I really like heavily hinted on the whole time. Guess what? He lied. Yeah. And Hitchcock has said to Truffaut that he felt if he felt that was a failure, he basically said that, like, look, I've got two failures in my life. The bomb going off uh, in sabotage. I, I hated that I killed that kid. And this because audiences weren't ready for this. But arguably, um this is innovating a technique that we would uh, see down the line in other films. So, you know, like it, it's weird that like for Hitchcock seeing it as a failure, if he were to look in 20, 20 years past his death and see what films were doing, he actually innovates that because he's basically using the, the, the machinations of film editing and storytelling to trick the audience in a way that, Yes, we alluded to I'm, I'm not Shyamalan doing that, but also the Saw films, I think, do that a lot, too, because they fudge around their flashbacks a lot to the point where what you saw in, say, one flashback at the beginning of, like, say, Saw 4 or 5 uh, is then upended in something like Saw 6 or 7. <laughs> so, um, Well, and the uh, thing is that is that this technique that he introduced, although very divisive, is so common in horror now that you still see it like in actual amateur written horror stories that you'd find on Reddit, for example, you know, and another one that I really, that I think is very, very poignant to point out that I don't think people realize where this is also used in is almost any movie about a serial killer. And so if we look at silence of the lambs, or if we look at, you know, certain biopsies of John Wayne Gacy or Ted Bundy, it'll reveal that the villain in that time um, lied about a certain thing. And that was the twist, you know, yeah. and, and, the, and I'm, I don't mean to be so vague about it as to like confuse anyone, but it'll be like, uh, you know, coming back to Silence of the Lambs, you know, Anthony Hopkins character, Hannibal, you know, was uh, obviously we all knew that he was planning, you know, to eventually escape, but we didn't know how he was going to do that. And his lie about talking about, you know, who he was and keeping things vague from Clarice was kind of that lie was yeah. kind of the thing. Yeah. Now, was it the exact same thing? No. And Saw is the better example. And M. Night Shyamalan's films are, eh, I guess, the better example. They just, I will argue that films like Saw kind of did it a bit better. The only thing that hold, that's holding them back is they went into way too much over detail about about certain motivations for certain characters. But uh, uh, we're not talking about Saw. Yeah, Point yeah, being is that yeah, this but, is a very, very common element and device that is now used in horror and even just thrillers, dramas, and actions. Oh, yeah. We, we mean, like, not, like, I mean, it, 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 go ahead. No, I was going to say Memento, like as a film that's not even a horror film, Memento does that in spades. Cause that's like, that's kind of the, basically the way it's constructed is to work backwards. And well, another film that was just like really loved, but on the more underground scene is, is well, Cody will just dis disagree because he hates it. 
so Cody's actually what I would like to use as an example of people that wear this device doesn't always work well with. And so the movie High Tension, um, not trying to spoil too much about it, but basically at the end we find out that everything that was happening in that movie, the killer was actually the protagonist the entire time, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. And so... It, that sounds like I just gave a heavy spoiler. You'll just have to see the movie more to see what I mean. I don't think um, it's. I don't. Me, th- I, I don't sorry, think it. I was gonna say I don't think it spoils high tension so much as like because I think high tension is an experience beyond just its spoiler. I think that's a. Yeah. I think it's a film you do need to experience within the moment. It's like it. Somebody can spoil Memento or even like a. Um, um, uh, I want to say like a, a usual suspects and whatnot, but you still want to watch how it happens. So I think you're. Oh yeah. <laughs> And, 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 like, that's what I mean, is that this device of the person lying about what happened in their flashback um, has evolved into the killer purposely lying about his flashback so nobody would catch on to his or her, you know, killings. And so, again, that's also very specific of how it's evolved. That's not the only way of how it's been used. But coming back to stage fright, coming back to the fact that he did lie about it, um, you know, it's just... It's something that is so normal now to see that I would have loved to have been back there back then just to hear that criticism of just like, what the fuck? <laughs> Matt, we can go over to Bosley Crowther's house together and we can just smack him around a little bit. It's totally fine. Like Time travel is totally cool now and we can totally do it. I have no problem having you come and help me smack some critics around. That'd be just wonderful and dandy. Um, but so anyway, to wrap it up, she he basically confesses to not only killing the husband and claiming that Charlotte goaded her goaded him on to do it, which it, you know it's arguable that she did because of the way Charlotte's been acting, but also that he killed a girl prior and claimed got off on self defense, and she says, well, you could you know they take care of you because you're clearly insane, and he says like no, not unless I killed a third person with no intention or reason. And then that would be insane, right? And we get it, this image of Johnny um, played played brilliantly in this scene by Richard Todd as basically a Norman Bates prototype where he snaps and loses it. And they, she tricks him enough to get him um, uh, uh, outside of the carriage and towards the stage door. And then she quickly locks the door in front of her and uh, isolates him. The police corner him. He tries to escape, and the safety curtain in the theater drops and kills um, Jonathan Cooper um, in a scene that, you know, obviously you're never going to get away with this in the 50s, but I would have loved to have seen the safety the safety curtain crush <laughs> Jonathan uh, to end his abusive reign of terror. <laughs> but, <laughs> again, we're talking about... You know, things we're never going to see because, Zach, they wouldn't allow that shit. You just have to get over that fact. Like, the, the Hollywood will never be what you want it to be. Um, but then we see Smith and um, Smith and Eve walk off, and that's the end of the movie in Alfred Hitchcock production. Um, the film's uh, response was, uh, were very mixed. Bosley Crowther, my favorite um, man to hate, uh, wrote that Hitchcock and his writers have contrived to give us to give a fine cast of actors some slick and entertaining things to do, but we must quietly advise you that these things, while amusing separately, build up very little sustained excitement or suspense. 
They are simply a wild accumulation of clever, colorful episodes, tending for the most part to be comic without any real anxiety. Um, and the as as you discussed with your reviews that you looked into and everything, people felt some critics felt a little tricked by that by the flashback reveal to be a fake. So, I basically when we when we look at this film, it's interesting how it sets up a lot of horror tropes that we see down the line, even though Hitchcock himself considers them failures. It's it's arguable to say that this is an instance where Hitchcock does something that doesn't quite work and that he never does again, but that other filmmakers then go on to perfect, um, which is something that I think that has been a little bit different from other things where he would later perfect them himself. Um, and I don't know, like that's that's basically the end of stage fright. Do you, Matt, do you have any anything to to part with on this in terms of uh, how you felt about watching this film? Is because it's not the traditional what we think of Hitchcock for the suspense and thriller realm. It's a little bit of a different bag. I would say that, you know, I mean, if, if you're just fascinated by Hitchcock, you're going to love this movie for the fact that it is one of Hitchcock's more unique takes on making a film. But if you are also a fan of horror and you love horror and you've always just kind of wondered where it got a little bit's footing from, where it got its influence from, and you want to know how it got some of the influence from Hitchcock, Starting with this movie is a great place to start because it has so many themes that are now for that are now normal that we now expect to see. Um, obviously, they're conceptualized and, and you know adapted in different ways. But if we can, I, oh, I said before on the on our show, I always say it again. You know, um, art can take on a separate life from the the person who creates it. Um, facts of the matter is is that. Uh, when we see movies and we want to go and experience a movie, we want to feel something. Whether that is we want to feel terrified of a killer in the darkness or the explosions that blow up and give us that excitement or even the romance of True Love's First Kiss. We want to experience something. So when we do experience frustration of feeling lied to, in this sense quite literally, and feeling like we were fooled, I think there in itself is a testament to how great a movie and how great an art form is because art makes you feel something art gets you to respond and if you respond with positively or frustration with it then you can't argue that it's not a good piece of art is it your favorite piece of art sure probably not but it's still a poignant one and even in general if you just like film this is definitely something that's going to be worth your time it is a little lengthy without a doubt but if you got time to kill, if you're stuck inside because of the epidemic, seriously, Stage Fright is is one of those movies that will fall to the wayside. It will be forgotten about if we let it. Right. No, absolutely. And on that note, <clears throat> Matt, I want to thank you for coming back on board to chat with us about some Hitchcock and to chat about a film that I don't think many people tend to dive into. And I'm glad we were able to dive into it as much as we were able to today. Um, Absolutely. And then really quickly, give us a plug for some punk rock horror podcasts. I want to hear it out your mouth. <laughs> yeah. So if you uh, if you know what our show is, then you already know my whole spiel. But if you uh, if I've enticed you to check us out in any way, you can do that over on you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Just search up punk rock horror podcasts on Facebook and Twitter at official PRHP. Um, we also have an Instagram uh, punk rock horror podcast over there as well. And I have an Instagram, too, if you want to follow me personally at the undead Matt. 
Um, we have content literally everywhere. We're on iTunes, iHeart, Spotify. We have a website, www.pugrockhorrorpodcast.com. Um, we have a best of playlist on Spotify. So if you don't know where to jump into with our content, we recommend that you go there. Just hit shuffle and, uh, you know, skip or listen as as needed until, so you can get, you know, an idea of who we are. And um, seriously, you know, thank you you man for bringing me on again thank you for uh you know uh, asking me to come back i do genuinely value it when somebody does actually uh look out to me and cody for our expertise because uh we we watched we've watched we said it on the show and we this is something we never lie about is that we've we've watched horror literally our entire lives my first walk into it was with a mixture of twilight zone tales from the crypt and then eventually stephen king's it and and I, it's something that I loved my entire life. And so whenever I get to, and when Cody does also get to be brought in to talk about it and just give our little expertise on it, it means the world to us. So thank you. Oh, not at all. I'm, I'm, I'm glad. I'm glad that you were able to take the time to do it. And I greatly appreciate you bringing your perspective onto this because this is a, this is a film that I think sets up a lot of tropes that don't play themselves out the way we normally see them today. But it is a film that, requires someone to come in and really talk about like okay like well this 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 and this end up becoming this down the line and um and again what's interesting about it is that it's not hitchcock perpetuating the perfection of it it ends up being something that others do down the line to a greater effect um so that's going to do it for this episode of the shamley silhouette you can find more episodes of the real sh- the, the shamley silhouette at realnerdspodcast.com um, you can find us uh, every week now as we um, get uh, to the end of this series. Um, they'll be coming up on the website first, and then they will be released on the iTunes feed. Uh, but until next time, good night. It's not because I wouldn't. It's not because I shouldn't. And you know. It's not because I couldn't. It's simply because. I'm the laziest guy.